0: Huh. What? Oh my goodness. Wow. Oh my gosh. What is happening? Oh my god. Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
1: Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work.
0: Get out! Come on!
1: We don't know where the moon came from.
0: Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible.
1: We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell
0: you it's not possible to.
1: Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. Welcome back to the BioEats World Journal Club, where we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. And today we're talking about new research in treating Parkinson's disease. What do you know about Parkinson's, Hannah? So, I know broadly that it's a neurodegenerative disease and that it's associated with things like tremors and difficulty moving. Exactly. Those notable symptoms are caused by the progressive death of a specific type of neuron called a dopaminergic neuron, which are the ones that produce the neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine is a happy neurotransmitter, right? Like it encodes positive reward? Yes, and it controls our motor neurons, so it has supercritical functions in the brain. And in the work that we're discussing today, the authors have devised a method for converting astrocytes, which is another cell type in the brain, into dopaminergic neurons to replace the neurons that are lost during Parkinson's. Creating new neurons? That's amazing. I didn't think that was possible. It's really incredible research. And I have the senior author of the paper, Zhang Fu from UCSD here, to tell me about how a student accidentally stumbled upon the key cell pathway that they exploit here to induce neurogenesis, how they created new neurons through a process called transdifferentiation in a living brain, and how these new neurons were able to restore the motor deficits in a mouse model of Parkinson's. We kick off with food describing the key features of Parkinson's disease.
1: Parkinson's disease is a pretty common neurological disorder. It's very prevalent, similar to Alzheimer's disease. So it's a one of the major challenge in our aging societies. And the general symptoms of Parkinson's disease: uh, the difficulty to make a controlled movement, like active movement, walking. So you almost feel that you are stumbled on something which is related to the dysfunctional motor neurons. And they also suffer from the loss of control of movement, and that's reflecting the tremor phenotype with the hand. The disease is also associated with other functions, including the cardiac functions or with non-motor neuron functions, such as depressions.
0: So it's a really common neurodegenerative disease, often associated with aging that is mostly characterized by loss of control of motor functions or an increased effort to perform motor functions, but also has this kind of wide-ranging list of symptoms associated with it. So what's the underlying cause of Parkinson's disease?
1: Most of the symptoms are related to the loss of a dopaminergic neuron, which secrete the neurotransmitter called dopamine. And this dopamine is the molecules in our brain that are responsible to control motor neuron functions and also responsible for the rewarding mechanisms.
0: So it's the loss of these dopaminergic neurons, which produce dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter in our brain that is the underlying cause for Parkinson's disease. And so what you're proposing in this paper is actually turning cells that are in the brain into neurons to replace the lost neurons. So let's talk about those cells that you're using to turn into neurons, astrocytes. What is the normal role of astrocytes in the brain?
1: Astrocyte, first of all, is highly abundant, comparable in number to neurons. In our brain, it's estimated to have 86 billion of neurons, and there are probably compatible number of astrocyte, and normally those astrocyte intermingled with neurons to have many roles to establish the connectivities with neurons but neuron cannot divide cannot replace themselves by right? cell so division on the other hand whenever you have a neuronal damage the astrocyte can become proliferative in the other word, they re-enter the cell cycle and then double themselves multiple times to do whatever role to help the neurons.
0: So astrocytes are a really common cell type in the brain. They normally help neurons and they're required for neuronal function, but they have this extra ability that they're proliferative. So they can divide and make more astrocytes. Whereas a neuron, once a cell becomes a neuron, it's never going to reproduce more neurons. So your work is talking about converting astrocytes into neurons to replace the neurons that are lost in Parkinson's disease. So how do you think about converting one cell type into another?
1: So this is generally related to a process called transdifferentiation. The normal differentiation is starting from embryonic cells, then you differentiate it into a different cell type. And then we used to thought once the cell have gone through certain lineage development, they are become irreversible. But however, a study in the eighties, the first example was the ability of fibroblasts that can be converted into muscles by overexpressing a muscle lineage factors called myoD. And then following that concept, people discovered one cell type can be converted to the other by using different sets of factors. Most of the time, it's lineage-specific transcriptional factors, okay? So basically, you can convert from one cell type to the other without having to go through the stem cell stage.
0: Yeah, so the way I always start when I'm thinking about cell identity and like different types of cells is starting from, you know, when a sperm meets an egg and they form an embryo, those cells differentiate and develop into all the different specialized cells in the body. So skin cells, liver cells, muscle cells, and the stem cells have the potential to become all those different cells. And so one way to think about how you convert one cell type into another cell type is that you actually first make the, let's say the skin cell, Make it look more like a stem cell. So you kind of backtrack, make it look like a stem cell, and then convert it into a second cell, a liver cell. But now we actually know that there's a way that you can go from skin cell to liver cell, as examples, without having to backtrack to a stem cell type stage. And that's through providing different transcription factors that turn on a whole host of genes that control that cell fate. And that is called transdifferentiation. And that's what you're doing in this paper is that you're taking the astrocytes and you're changing their transcriptional profile. You're turning on a big set of genes so that they now become neurons.
1: That's correct. Yeah. But the only distinction here is that in our case, we are manipulating RNA binding protein instead of a transcriptional factors. So this is a major distinction from most other works. That is purely due to accidental observation in the laboratory settings.
0: I would love to hear about that kind of serendipitous discovery of how you figured out that an RNA binding protein was able to reprogram astrocytes into neurons.
1: So we are RNA biologists. So we have been studying RNA processing and most of the time we don't even think about how our research are related to the disease process. So we just want to understand how these different factors regulate the functions in the cell. Okay, so doing that process, we just chose PDB. And this PDB is interesting because it has been well known to regulate RNA splicing to produce different mRNA isoforms. And it turns out that there is the paralog called MPDB, also called PDB2, that are expressed only in the neural progenitor and then when the neuron become mature, the MPDB also goes away. So the common practice was to knock down PDB in order to induce MPDB and see what happens. So my student tried to do that and get tired of the whole process knocking down. so he just said, why don't I generate a cell line Now kill the PDB, that the MPDB to be expressed in a more constitutive fashion, so he has more material to deal with for his experiment. And that was the surprising finding made, because when he tried to kill the PDB in the stable cell lines, the cell don't grow anymore. And then he has no choice, but with hope to leave the cell in the incubator long enough, some cell will grow, and then he has a cell line to work with. And two or three weeks later, when he took a look, Uh, his culture dish, he saw a lot of uh, kind of a fiber grow out of each killer cells. And initially we thought it's a contamination. But when we asked other people to take a look, they said the cell looked like a neuron. So that's the beginning of our discovery, not need our systematic effort to understand why any cell can become a neuron when you get rid of PDB. And indeed, we first test multiple cell types And every single one becomes neurons when you try to get rid of PTB.
0: I love that story. I think you're a lab that's studying RNA processing, and your student just wants to make like a basic cell line that he can work off that just doesn't have PTB in it. And he actually discovered that if you knock out PTB in any cell, all of a sudden it can become a neuron, which is such an amazing, serendipitous finding born of trying to just make a shortcut cell line
1: yeah yeah i mean this happened in science histories a lot just people make a shortcut or make a mistake simply and discover something
0: so the idea is that you remove ptb and this triggers cells to go through this process where they become neurons and now, you know, in this particular paper, you're looking in the mouse brain. You're trying to convert astrocytes into neurons in this brain region, which particularly suffers from neuronal loss in Parkinson's disease. So how did you remove PDB in astrocytes in the mouse brain so that they could become neurons?
1: So the first approach we did is to build a targeting vector that express this short helping. RNA against PDB, so that's a pretty standard, okay? And in this expression unit, we also link RLP gene that express red fluorescence protein so that you can monitor how the cell fate conversions from one cell type to the other and also monitor this process.
0: Okay, so you have a virus that has a fluorescent marker so that you can visualize the astrocytes and see their conversion from astrocytes to neurons. And then the short hairpin RNA, which is going to destroy PDB and prevent it from being expressed in the cell. And then you physically inject this virus into a specific region of the brain.
1: Correct. The process called the stereotactic injection. And in this particular case, we injected this genetic payload to a substantial nigra region, which is the brain region that generated dopaminergic neurons.
0: So you've delivered this genetic payload into the substantial nigra. How did you validate that the astrocytes had become neurons?
1: Right. So we did a series of work by first using the markers because the astrocyte has its own markers and then neurons have their own markers. And then when you wait longer and longer, not only you see their expression changes, but also the morphological changes. And then those newly generated neurons start to have this process called a neurite that stick out and grow long distance. So that's the first layer of evidence to determine their progressive conversion. And it turns out this process takes about a month to happen.
0: Right yeah which makes sense you're triggering the same kind of developmental pathways as that normally happens in neurogenesis so it's almost kind of comforting that it took a long time because that means it's replicating what happens in nature and then first you're just doing sort of visual assays looking at the shape of the cells and you know the very characteristic neuronal shapes and then also comparing the proteins that are expressed between astrocytes and neurons but of course, a neuron is not just looks. It's also got to be substance. So, what kind of functional characteristics did these cells need to achieve to really for you to be able to say, this is a neuron now?
1: Right. So, to have a neuron look like a neuron does not mean they are functional neurons. And one of the major criteria for functional neurons is their ability to get integrated within the existing circuitry, which is why we also follow their process, targeting the distal region and then determine if there is a formation of a synapse with other neurons. More importantly, you can now measure the neuronal activity, like action potentials, and obviously, if we're talking about dopaminergic neurons, can they make a dopamine? can they induce the dopamine release when you electronic signal to release like endogenous dopaminergic neurons?
0: Yeah. So these new neurons, they have to connect the different parts of the brain. They have to project from one area to another. They have to have that electrical signaling, that action potential, and that produce dopamine and that release dopamine. So at this point in the paper, you have demonstrated that in the brain you can turn the astrocytes in the substantia nigra into dopaminergic neurons that project into the regions that you want them to and that are functional neurons. So now you're going to start looking in this model of Parkinson's disease and see if you can replace the lost neurons that come with the disease. So let's start by talking about the mouse model that you used. How is this model created and what are the key differences between the model and the human disease?
1: As we know, model is a model. Mouths are not the same as humans. But however, this model is attractive in several ways. One, the major attractiveness is that it's highly reproducible. So you basically inject a chemical called six-hydroxyl dopamine, which is the dopamine-related molecules, but it's poison. So once you get into the dopaminergic neuron is creates a toxic effect and that will kill the dopaminergic neuron. So another aspect recaptures the end stage of Parkinson's disease patient, which is the loss of the dopaminergic neuron. However, it's important to emphasize this is a lot the natural process of initiation and progression of Parkinson's disease by genetics or environmental process that caused the uh, dysfunctional of a dopamine neuron followed by the eventual death, so none of those things is reproduced here. but here, remember our strategy is to try to replace lost neurons, so we focus on using this model to test whether you can generate new neurons that coexist with the damaged neuron
0: right, yeah. Parkinson's is characterized by the loss of dopaminergic neurons. So this model recapitulates that. It kills dopaminergic neurons, they are gone. But Parkinson's disease is more than just the loss of the neurons. It's actually the dysfunction of the neurons which eventually leads to the loss of the neurons. And this model doesn't recapitulate any of the elements of that dysfunction or that like age onset or the fact that you know that Parkinson's exists for years before symptom onset. So this model mimics the endpoint really well, but it doesn't recapitulate any of kind of those interstitial or early stages. Right. So you have these mice that have been treated with this chemical that destroys their dopaminergic neurons, and then you inject the virus that has this genetic payload to knock out PDB and to convert the astrocytes into neurons. Whereas previously you were working in a whole healthy brain, what are the considerations when you're moving into this model?
1: Right. So let's break into at least two portions. Number one is, can you convert astrocyte into topological neuron, And then related question is that, can you target those neurons into the straightened regions? So fortunately, in this case, we can show in disease setting, that goes in the right place, just like in the normal mice. Okay? So that means you have a neuron there, and we can even show you have dopamine biogenesis restored, and then you can have activity-induced dopamine release in the right region, means uh, strident regions.
0: So in the model that you're using, one aspect of Parkinson's disease that it recapitulates is that the mice have these motor deficits. They have trouble using their limbs, and A really interesting way that you study this is that you only kill the neurons in half of the substantia nigra. And if you kill the neurons in the left half, of the substantia nigra, that means that the right half of the mouse body is the only one that shows the deficit. So one half is going to be fine, and then the other half is going to be damaged. And so you can then do behavioral assays to determine whether the mice are able to regain normal function. You have kind of this internal control that you can compare it to the other limb.
1: Correct. So we did have a set of assay to measure this Parkinson-related neuron functions. And one of the assay we used is called the NIMBA used assay. So once you do the reprogramming, you want to monitor at a different time point. Uh, So what we found out is that you regain the ability after reprogramming, okay? You don't see much of the recovery in one month, which makes sense because you need one month for the neuron to become mature. And then you start the major regain of functions in two months and almost a full recovery in three months, okay? And it turns out we keep one set of mice for two years and the phenotype is still there. Reprogrammed one looks like a normal mice, lifelong. So in the other words, this is remarkable if you think about it. Because when we inject our reprogram agent, it's so little, it's just two microliter. I mean, two microliter, the volume is less than uh, sesame seed. Okay, just inject that little into the brain, then you recover all those functional deficits and then make this mouse a normal lifetime. So, if this is eventually work out in humans, it's really, really good news to the patient.
0: I think that is so exciting because in this paper, you're able to show not only that you were able to. Generate functional neurons that projected to the right area and that had this dopamine release. It's kind of like on an academic level. You know, you really showed that these neurons could replace the lost neurons and that they could restore the motor neuron deficits that are present in this mouse model of Parkinson's. And the fact that it's just like a one and done treatment, like you do it one time and then it has an impact for the rest of the mouse life. You know, you said that you kept mice for two years. That is an old mouse. That's like a 90-year-old mouse. And so that it still was seeing benefits from the treatment at that time, you know, for the Parkinson's community where this is, you know, a lifelong condition is really exciting. Right. What do you think the big questions and challenges that would need to be addressed before this could be tried in Parkinson's disease patients?
1: I feel there are a few hurdles we must overcome. One hurdle is that we have to elevate the small brain in the mouse into a bigger ones, such as monkeys, because, you know, the brain size matters. That the neuron has to grow longer in larger brain than shorter brain. When you deal with reconstitution of a neuronal circuit in the adult brain, you require the new neuron to grow a longer distance. Whether that works in the monkey is unclear, okay? The good news is that people try to place a stem cell into the monkey, it does work. So that means if the stem cell has a capacity to grow, then why not your endogenous cell? So that's encourage use, but you have to demonstrate in that regard.
0: Right, the neurons grow at the same rate between a smaller-brained animal like a mouse and a larger brain animal like a primate, but the distance that they have to grow to is longer. So it's going to take longer for these new neurons to grow to the correct length to get from the substantia nigra to the striatum. And so if this technology were to work and we were to put it into people, whereas you see improvements in the mice in about a month to three months, you know, it might take a lot longer in humans before you actually see a recovery of the motor deficits.
1: Right. It is possible in humans, it takes half a year to see that. but hopefully once you see the benefit and then you progressively see more and more until the whole restoration so that's the hope okay and the second one is that the small animals are a lot very good for detect side effect because the mouse does not tell you much but in a rat or a monkey you can tell them whether or not they become sleep too much or they wake too much or they have other Suffering, there is a whole slew of toxicity profiling you have to do. You have to determine and show and prove that the potential side effect due to either depletion of adricide or uh, generation of too many neurons or the non specific targeting of neurons, all kind of things that may cause side effect.
0: Yeah, it's something that has to be so carefully considered and designed because you know you're changing the brain, you're changing neurons, which could have a really wide range of effects. The substantia nigra controls a lot of different functions. So you would want to really thoroughly test that and have a really good sense of what could happen and try to address that before ever going into humans.
1: One more hurdle we need to overcome, which is the aging related, because doing the aging now you may gradually lose a lot of endogenous problems. So, now we have to overcome that so that the procedure can be applied to older people as old as possible.
0: Yeah, as we age, cell proliferation in general really goes down. So, if you were relying on the regenerative capacity of astrocytes for this therapy, if you are an older person who has Parkinson's disease, your astrocytes may not convert as effectively to neurons just because those regenerative processes are really slowed down with aging. So this may work better for those people who have really early onset Parkinson's and less well for older patients.
1: Right. Then the third hurdle you have to overcome is so-called delivery issues. And then, you know, stereotactic injection, you can do it through neurosurgeons. But ideally, if you can find a different way to do it, which you become less invasive, the better, right?
0: Yeah, people don't love the idea of getting a needle in the brain. So what other conditions might a therapy like this be used for?
1: In terms of different disease, we're talking about uh, most of the neurodegenerative disease are age-related. Right? We're talking about Parkinson disease and Alzheimer's disease or others. And in addition, there are many childhood neurological diseases that feature the neuronal loss and the development of the nervous system. Okay, Typically like a Down syndrome kid, and then they just stop neurogenesis much earlier than normal human beings. So this strategy then may be applied to those kind of neurological disorders that affect people very early on. And hopefully, the whole community will work together to find out, because this is not something one lab can do effectively. And then, as you can imagine now, there are years of research ahead of us to do that. And even though our passion is try to bring this to the clinic as soon as possible.
0: Right. Yeah, there's so many different opportunities to which this kind of approach can be applied, and it's just a really different way to think about how we treat neurological diseases. So my last question is, if you could have listeners take one message from this discussion, what would you want them to walk away with?
1: So the key message is that the basic research is the ingredient for breakthrough. What's really needed is the ability to chase those strange, unexpected phenomena and understand the mechanisms. So in the other word, as a scientist, you may want to remain open-minded always ask the next questions. And does not mean everybody will need to a breakthrough in disease fightings, but collectively we will. So that's why the basic science is important. Curiosity-driven research is important and translational research or organized effort are also important to advance our knowledge as well as advance our approach to challenges that we're facing as a society.
0: Thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.